0: What's up, my friends? My name is Adam McRoberts, and this is the Do Big Things Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Big Things Crewing, where we want you to do big things. We offer support for your ultra marathon in the way of crewing or pacing. We also offer personalized coaching and comprehensive training plans. We can help you get to the start of your big things, or we can help you get to the finish. We can coach you up, or we can crew you in. Whatever your big things are, we want to help. Look us up, big-things-crewing.com. Do I sound different? I hope so. I finally broke down and upgraded my equipment for the podcast. I'm so tired of apologizing to some of my really amazing guests I've been fortunate enough to have on my show for the sound quality being total dog crap. So thanks for hanging in there with me this long, you guys. Uh, I'm going to be doing my best from now on to make each episode sound somewhat professional. I'm still learning. Listen, I'm only human and I'm just doing my best. Me personally, I usually have to colossally screw something up before I really know how to do it right, which is... Uh, kind of the story of my life also from now on my future episodes including this one are going to be on youtube so do me a solid head on over to my little youtube page big things crewing and hit subscribe it would mean the world to me you can leave me review on apple podcasts or you can donate a buck or two to keep this podcast alive and kicking means so much my guest today Dr. Rob Casserly has successfully climbed Mount Everest seven times. He owns his own company where he takes people trekking in the Everest region. He's a really fascinating guy and I love talking with him. He has rode almost the entire Atlantic, done multiple Ironmans, among a whole host of other things. Uh, I'd like to thank my man, John Denise, for setting this interview up he reached out and said, this is the man I want to hear in your podcast. Listen, you guys, I'm no Joe Rogan. During this conversation, I was just trying to keep up with him. Not only is he a highly educated doctor, but he's a mountaineer in the sense of the word that I don't fully understand. Uh, I've always felt like I was a mountaineer or maybe just an alpine runner, but Uh, Truth be told, I've I've never really been up above fourteen thousand some odd feet. In this case, we're talking about mountains twice that high, so hang tight. Rob Casterly is coming up right after this. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. all right sir so thank you so much for joining the the do big things podcast i'm super pumped to have you here um introduce yourself if you don't mind
1: thanks adam well it's a great pleasure to be here um i'm uh, rob cassidy i'm a a doctor from england who's found himself by chance working in the, the french language in quebec the province of mm. quebec in canada and uh, i think i'm on this podcast i think uh, as a result <laughs> of some friendships uh uh, in the mountains that I've yes. had uh, that led from one thing to another, but uh yeah amongst my repertoire i've uh, I've rode most of the Atlantic, climbed uh, a few big mountains in the Himalayas, and uh, had the great pleasure to try and make big things happen
0: Wow so I mean, how did this this lifestyle start for you? How did this journey start? like where did you grow up and how did you get this adventurous spirit?
1: um well i was really i had a really typical steady background as a kid uh i was an only child brought up in a, a kind of little village in the south of england um, okay. where there were no real uh, adventure opportunities and certainly no big mountains okay and uh, so i did the, the typical kind of growing up thing went to school did fairly well at school and during my kind of young years my mum had a major heart surgery and uh it had a kind of profound impact upon me, and I kind of saw the doctors and nurses who'd made my mum better and uh, I think that kind of stimulated my drive to become a doctor so I was pretty set on a road to becoming a doctor, which I became in the end uh, and doing the kind of everyday regular thing that that we're all expected to do as we grow up, get a good job, provide for a family, and mm. uh, end with a bigger mortgage and get more responsibilities and drive to work harder and harder and it's like Thank God I slipped out of that, that kind of uh, rat race, thankfully, um, in my kind of early 20s. But I guess it all triggered, my kind of sense of adventure it was triggered by a, a search for something to do in a year off between school and university. So we call school high school okay. and university is what you guess, I guess what you would say in America is school. Yeah. And uh, so, most of my mates were going to Australia to go fruit picking and uh, I don't know, just traveling around, and paying as they went. And that kind of, I never fancied myself as a fruit picker. I and mean, it wasn't because I was above it, I just didn't fancy out being in the sun and not traveling and seeing the world. And uh, someone said to me, Hey, there's, a, there's an advert in the ma- this magazine saying that, do you want to travel the world and ten, earn 10,000 pounds, which in those days was a lot of money, That's certainly fair. for someone coming out of high school, and be an officer in the army? And like, Mm. I never ever thought about that. And I'm not military in in any form of the words, but I kind of went, uh, I went for it. I just thought, oh, I'll give it a go. I never expected to get through the kind of fairly rigorous um, selection panel. And I think it's because I had no idea of what I was letting myself in for uh, that I actually got through the kind of, you know different levels of testing to the end and, and got chosen to be an officer in the british army for a year okay and in that time i, I went to the, the military academy at 18 and it was kind of fairly brutal like made me learn how to you know no pain no gain was uh, one of the classic kind of lines from that 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 situation at that, that time of being in the uh, military academy and at the time i hated it i mean i really hated it <laughs> but having got through it, I realized actually it probably did make a man of me. It certainly made me a lot more durable. And I think durability is one of those things that is a great, a great tool that we all uh, can fall back on. And if you can get through those hard times, then well, paradise awaits you.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Well, that's a good start. So did you do sports in high school or, or in your younger years at all?
1: Well, yeah, here's a, here's a throw out to people who are fighting, you know, less good health or obesity or a habit they wish they could kick. I was a really fat child. And ah. when I say that, I'm saying this in a kind of medically uh, uh, aware state in that saying someone's fat is not politically correct. But I was really fat. Mm. So I had a 36 inch waist aged 11 years of age wow. and uh, I couldn't run for toffee and they put me in goal for soccer uh, and I mm. kind of filled most of it. So uh, I was pretty good <laughs> in goal. But we, uh, there was a kind of a, a school program that kids would watch when they got home from school about an inner city London school, a high school. And uh, the the fat guy called Rolly was picked on mercilessly. Mm. And so I decided I didn't want that uh, in my life. And so at 11, I lost uh, about 50 pounds in weight because oh. of kind of desire for me to kind of turn things around and, uh, and I think I learned willpower at that young age as well. So falling back on your own responsibilities and with the help of my mom and my dad at the time, um, it triggered me into becoming uh, a leaner form of my former self and uh, and then suddenly able to run a bit faster, throw a bit further and uh, and then yeah, then I got really pretty good at a number of different sports um, from 12, 13 onwards. I was Playing rugby at a high standard, which is a game a much better game than American football. Although I've become more and more keen on American football, <laughs> yes. uh, I agree. <laughs> you know, with,
0: I agree with you actually. I,
1: I, I don't want to turn off a hold of the uh, you know the listeners by not saying I like American football. I do like American <laughs> football, but yeah, rugby is a brutal, uh, violent game, uh, uh, but but excellent fun. So uh, yeah, so I, was, I suddenly became more able physically, and that helped with my kind of new sense of willpower and my durability that I found in in the army. And so uh, we climbed Mount Kenya when I was out, out uh, on, a, on my, uh, one, an expedition with the army wow. and we were building a I was in the Royal Engineers. So I wasn't like shooting guns at many people. I was trying to build schools, airstrips and a hospital mm. in a remote part of Kenya. And during some of the, the, the downtime, we climbed Mount Kenya and I found it really hard, the altitude. It was only at the trekking peak point of Nine, that we did. Uh, but I thought it was one of the toughest things I'd ever done. And then uh, 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 one thing led to another. I got through medical school in my first year of being a doctor. Um, You realise kind of the futility of what we're doing in some ways. It's very rare that you actually save somebody's life. They turn it around and they have a great time thereafter. We're often putting sticky plasters on things and pretending the kind of major social problems that we're all living with don't really exist. And you just kind of get from one day to another. I wish it were more sexy than that but that's pretty much a, a, one of the harsher realities I learned and I think that was the uh, it triggered a kind of need to have a year out I wasn't on burnout but I'd realized that you know the idea of being a doctor saving lives actually wasn't quite how I thought it really was
0: and how old were you at this time
1: so at the end of med school I was 24 so okay. I had a year as a doctor at 25 and I did uh I did some teaching of anatomy because so I wanted to become a surgeon I was still on track to have that typical career and, uh, and then I did a big uh, inner city uh, emergency job. And so that was just, you know, drug addicts, um, social deprivation, you know, really terrible, awful kind of life situations for a lot of people. And uh, that's when I realized, hey, I need to cut loose for a, a bit of time, find out what I'm all about. And uh, I have met a patient who tried to climb Everest and he told me, hey, I did it for £8,000, which in those days instead is is much less money than what you'd pay for for a typical Everest trip which you hear about and he had no guides he was climbing himself but it just tickled that idea in my 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 mind and I remember reading Into Thin Air which Mm. as you dig deeper crack um Mm. you know I think he wrote a great book I know a lot of the characters in the book from from subsequent climbing trips and uh what you realize is that there's obviously a fair a fair amount of creative license in that book but but it gives you a basis to work on uh, about how to climb Everest but for me what was striking was how many people survived and not how many people died on that that night in 96 mm-hmm. so I kind of wasn't completely put off by that and uh and so I just thought you know maybe even someone like me could climb Everest and so uh, I put a lot of time and effort into training climbing different numbers of mountains around the world in this kind of fantastic year off I felt like a superstar I was traveling all around the world the mountains and mountains were in such amazing places in the world and uh, I was funding it through locum jobs which are short-term jobs that you can take on to earn a bit more money uh, and then it gets you from one trip to the next that's the great thing about being a doctor it's a great privilege to be able to uh, earn a good good amount of money for what you're doing it's like a, you know you feel like you're you're earning your way when you work, but you are, you know, it's it's a way of making money to get you to the next trip.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, that's cool. So, on this year off, um, what kind of mountains were you climbing to train for Everest? Were you doing like the the big the big seven mountains, the great the great seven peaks, or?
1: Yeah, so this is like two thousand and two. Okay, so it's a long time ago. There was still not that many people who've done the seven summits. It was still that's a 10. thing. Yeah, so. um I started on Elbrus, which is one of the easier mountains, and it and it, it went really well. We uh, had a great trip. We were in uh, Russia, in you know southern Russia. It was a uh, still kind of a frosty era, I think two thousand and two, if I remember correctly. Um, and that went really well. And then we went on a trip to Denali. I joined uh, a mountain nice. trip. So it's a company in a uh, based in I think it's based in Colorado, even but they um, they did the trip on Denali and we didn't make the summit. And it's like one of those classic times in the mountains where you, you leave so disappointed, but you realize actually the reason why you're there, yeah, superficially it's just for the summit. But actually a lot of the things I've taken from life have been when I've failed and I've actually taken a lot more out of i mean this is a i'm trying to ease the, the 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 sense of loss and failure which i've had many many times in my life but um equally it gives you a great contrast to when you do succeed and when you realize that actually it's not all about the summit and it gives you a great sense of uh, humility when it doesn't quite go your way and so i think um uh the denali trip i met some great people i, I love america i'm one of america's number one fans and obviously it's going through traumatic times as we speak um uh, and I won't get political on something that's not meant to be political but um you know I I do love the 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 great sense of opportunity and the outdoors for for people like us who are interested and if you've got an interest and and a car or a way of getting out to the back country you can have such an amazing time in the states but uh yeah after after Denali I uh I, I went to Aconcagra, that was another complete disaster, uh, we didn't make it, bad weather, and it seemed like my my, my attempt for the seven summits was going to be well and truly over before it had started, but I, um, I had it, a chance, me, oh was sorry, it bad,
0: Was it bad weather on Denali too, is that why you didn't make it to the summit?
1: Yeah, so Denali was. Uh, we had seven days at uh, fourteen camps So on the typical route, uh, the West Buttress route on Denali, there are a number of set camps. And at fourteen thousand camp, uh, we climbed up the uh, the head wall, cached our uh, gear just below Washburn's thumb. I think it's Washburn's thumb. It's a long time since I've been there now. Uh, so it's it's a great place. You build, you build walls, you dig holes. It's all about survival skills. It's about you know. Effort, brute force, and that's kind of really good. I'm, I'm good at that. You know, durability, as I mentioned, is one of the things I I got pretty good at. I learned to sort of love no pain, no gain. And uh, <laughs> so we put all this really expensive, brand new climbing gear that I've been working really hard to buy. Uh, and like I'm still only in my early or my mid twenties at this point. And uh, we big, dig a big hole, come back down the mountain, and it's all about taking things progressively higher and higher up a mountain uh, on Denali and uh, a storm comes in and after a week the guides say there's no way we can go back up so we're going down and it's like uh well excuse me what about the gear <laughs> my down jacket's up there i need it for the next expedition uh you'll never believe it but the year after uh, someone found it brought it down and ah, sent it nice. back to us all and that's, okay. you know you wouldn't you wouldn't get that in many parts of the world you know that's okay. a, an american trait so fantastic cool um But yeah, so that was weather, uh, Aconcagua, uh, weather as well. I mean, that's probably one of the closer times I've had to complete disaster. Uh, And it just shows that even on some of the safer mountains, you know, any mountain on its day, a 14,000 or a a big Himalayan peak, uh, it can be the most beautiful and straightforward ascent, or it can be a total disaster. And you just never know what's around the corner. So always go out prepared, always prepare for the worst case scenario within reason. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, we've been good luck, uh, uh, durability, uh, yeah, we can make big things happen.
0: For sure. That's it right there. So this just sounds like an amazing year. And I sort of had kind of a year like this. It didn't really happen till my thirties where, you know, I just had this big exploration year. And for me, all I was doing, all I was doing quote unquote was just climbing the 14,000 foot peaks in Colorado, just kind of living <laughs> in my truck, climbing all the peaks. But yeah. this just sounds like a... Um, one of those years that one would romanticize in, in a novel like you're traveling around the world you're doing all these big mountains and it's all just training for Everest right the whole time you knew that your your training was ramping up for this
1: yeah because I I, uh, I think from reading Krakow's uh, Into Thin Air and having seen a number of different people on these trips up to that point that when you start getting into commercial mountaineering you realize that there's a whole range of Uh, experience, capacity, sometimes the most experienced people often aren't the best people on an expedition so what I realized I really enjoyed was expeditioning but I didn't want to be a liability in a team, for me that was really important to be able to independently manage a situation, not necessarily all the kind of climbing techniques and safety on a mountain, that's why I was paying into being a part of an expedition but I was very much a member of a team, not a client. And I really, as I've gone on to guide in the mountains, I always try and reinforce to people that when you when you come onto a trip sunny with me, you're you will be well looked after. But actually when the shit hits the fan, and sorry to excuse my friends. No, you're good. When the shit hits the fan, uh, you need to have a, a level of skill and, and durability to be able to get you out of that situation. Because you know, if if I went down, who's gonna save you? So you need to be able to look after number one so that you're no longer a liability to so the other people mm. in your team. Mm. So, um, yeah, so I, that's why I wanted to do a lot of trips before going to Everest. Yeah. I climbed Chooyu actually, in uh, the, the the end of 2002, in the autumn mm. of 2002. And that was, um, that's where I met Henry Todd. And uh, Henry had come with a kind of um, a kind of a forewarning, you know, he had a, a bigger than uh Bigger than life uh, presence about him and uh, and somewhat of a checkered past in the mountains he was one of the kind of the, the revolutionaries in the mountains and kicked off kind of commercial guiding with Scott Fisher Rob Hall who mm. would lose their lives in 96 but he was there and he he uh, he climbed with Anatoly uh, Bukharev, who was climbing for Scott Fisher in 96 but 95 was climbing with Henry and so Henry runs so-called unguided trips, cheaper trips for people like me. He didn't have the money to, to go on to a big, you know, luxurious commercial trip. And it's a bit like the British military compared to the American military. There are a few much less creature comforts when you go on a British military uh, trip or expedition. But you realize that it doesn't necessarily make the soldiers less good. And, and the same thing goes for a, a mountain trip sometimes too much comfort, too much luxury can make you a bit softer. Mm-hmm. And so although these days with, with commercial expeditioning often accentuating comforts and how they're going to look after you, I think you still need to have a core capacity and, uh, and endurability to, to make it work successfully.
0: Yeah. yeah. So what did that look like for you as, as you're training for this, what does that durability and, and um, you know, just strength look like in, in, what do you tell your clients? Do you tell them to come in with a certain base level of fitness or do they have certain requirements they have to do before they're able to come out on a guided tour with you?
1: Yeah. So like when I was actively, um, it's hard to say guiding because um, I don't have a, a, a recognized guiding qualification. It's never something that I've set myself up into doing, but by default I've been a guide on trips at high altitude. And there's a, there'll be a lot of criticism about that in the sense that, what credibility does that person have uh, in that arena in terms of you know safety regulations and ticking all the boxes but equally when you when you have a tried and proven product or person someone like myself who I've summited every state times now it's actually quite a that gives someone quite a a strong sense of of security when you know that someone's got physical capacity Mm -hmm. and uh, the wherewithal to, to deal with situations and and how I got onto trips and how I kind of Uh, subsidized trips as being a doctor as well on trips so I I became by default an expedition medic and that's kind of what led to being in the mountains more and more over the last you know 10-15 years it was a that that dual role and people seeing the benefit of having a doctor who could climb and go quick and carry 25 kilos you know at high altitude and and need less oxygen and, and just be able to be a motor in in the mountains it gives you know, and everyone potentially benefits, not to say that, you know, every doctor is useful in the mountains, far from it, you know, I'd much rather have a guide or, you know, uh, uh, an emergency tech in the mountains who knows sure. what they're doing than, yeah. than a doctor from, you know, mid-state New York who's never been out of his office, uh, <laughs> if you see what I mean.
0: Yeah, yeah, 100%. No, that's a, a good dual benefit there. So, I mean, so you're training for this, for this big event, and what was your first Everest like? I mean, I can only imagine one being nervous. I mean, it must take like a couple months to actually do this thing, right?
1: Yeah, so in, in, in the early 2000s, the the oxygen delivery systems were much less efficient. It was a, um, an old MiG fighter pilot's oxygen mask, so the MiG fighter planes from Russia. So all the oh. oxygen systems were Russian-based. So really kind of primitive looking gear, not delivering oxygen in an efficient way. So the physical demands at higher altitude were much harder. Um, in terms of being on the mountain, pretty much things haven't changed so much in the sense that, you know, food is food. Oxygen in a bottle is oxygen. Um, uh, but in terms of the numbers of people, there are less people on the mountain. Um, but it was the 50th anniversary year, so it had drawn in quite a few people the first year that I did it. So it's it the 50th
0: is that the 50th anniversary of the first person who ever summited?
1: Yeah, so on the 29th of May, 1953, uh, Tenzing and Hillary summited Everest for the, the first time. And okay. so that that that's an iconic thing, a bit like landing on the moon. I think it's mm-hmm. it's up there in those kind of number two, tier one kind of events, you know, human you know, achievements. For sure. So yeah. Um, so that was uh, that year was the 50th anniversary year there's just chance it's not uh, kind of certainly nothing I would have planned in fact I would have gone for a year where it hadn't been the 50th anniversary if anything <laughs> but yeah no so it's incredibly exciting though um, you know there were lots of people at base can be so many interesting people who go on these kind of trips mm-hmm. certainly in the early 2000s it was still a a niche thing i think it's become more and more and i haven't been there for a couple of years on an actual climbing expedition i've been trekking and climbing smaller mountains in the last few years but not not on everest and i sense more and more really anyone can go to everest just sign up for a trip and you'll probably be taken and and you know there's 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 a whole number of issues in that good and bad um but uh in 2003 it was still kind of Pretty much mountaineers were there. It was a serious crowd, but very interesting, serious crowd, if you see what I mean. I remember there being politicians from America. I couldn't tell you who it was, but there was, I think, someone from Texas who was a a governor from Texas. Texas, there was a a former astronaut. You know, there were some interesting kind of people, you know, really high-caliber people. And you realise what you've done in life. There's always going to be someone who's done a lot more and who's a lot more impressive. (laughs) So you can only really compare yourself against yourself, your better self. Yeah. That's another thing actually for, uh, you know, working out where you are. Whenever I talk about what I've done, I realize, you know, having listened to some of your podcasts, you're speaking to some great, you know, great athletes out there and great people. It's always someone who's done way more than you. So never get, you know, comfortable <laughs> with what you've never get overindulgent in what you have or haven't done.
0: Well, yeah, that's true, but if I'm not mistaken, you've done a couple Ironmans yourself, um, you know, you, you've done, um, you know, Everest seven times, you've rode the Atlantic, I mean, you've done a lot of big things yourself.
1: Yeah, well, I, I kind of, uh, um, they're kind of jamboree events, aren't they? You know, I suppose, uh, you know, an Ironman sounds really, uh, really <laughs> cool, but I mean... An Ironman, anyone can do an Ironman. That's this. I think what I've realised is that, um, and I mean that sincerely. I think uh, uh, that the, when I did my first Ironman, I um, I did in eleven hours and eighteen minutes, I think it was. Nice. So it was like a reasonable time. It was like pretty good. I hadn't, I'm not a big trainer, but we cycled my wife and I, Mary Cristel. We cycled from Vancouver to Tijuana that that summer. So my yeah. my my biking legs were perfect. I was like. Yeah not for like fast fast but i was like great on hills as you can imagine for uh, sure. california is really northern california in particular yeah. really mountainous and just fantastic just one of the best trips i've ever done actually to cycle yeah, yeah, yeah sounds Vancouver. amazing yeah i recommend that to anyone any athlete who's done any kind of activity cycle touring can give you just this amazing sense of freedom lack of uh, actual hard plan gives your mind space to be free and mm-hmm. You realize like in Oregon, every town is about 25 miles apart as you go north, south or south, north, all related to how far cart horses could travel uh, back <laughs> in the day. So 25 wow. miles would be the kind of daily uh, distance. And so, you know, you, you know, these kind of historical reminders and beautiful scenery and never knowing whether you're going to make it up to the next 25 miles or not. You know, just it's nice not planning and not knowing and just being, you know, free. So that's, a, that's the thing you don't get when you're in the mountains because you've got a structure and a plan. or a, That's true. A so, um, yep. yeah, it's a, it's a great thing for psychological and physical well-being. Yeah. But, yeah, the, uh, the Ironman, just the person the, the who got the biggest cheer, you know, when you cross the line. I don't know if you've done an Ironman. But I have. You get a, you are an Ironman, same guy. I think mm-hmm. you travel saw all the events. And, it you know, it felt really good. And I I did it in Mont-Tremblant, so a ski resort in, mm-hmm. uh, near Montreal and uh, there were maybe a thousand people at the finish line felt special man really felt, felt good mm-hmm. um but the person who got the most cheers was a, a middle-aged lady who came in at 16 hours 59 minutes and 52 seconds if i remember rightly that's cool she, yeah and she you know she was in her 50s overweight but she'd been training and training and training and i realized again it's actually not about me and what i've done it's actually when you look at the bigger picture that achievement for her was the, the most incredible thing on the day. It was better mm-hmm. than the eight hours fifteen by the winner, and it was right. way better than my eleven hours eighteen but we you know it 's great to have those individual things you 've done but yes, yeah, so iron mans have been great. I rode the Atlantic but didn 't quite so i um the Atlantic's two thousand five hundred miles uh, uh, from point to point of our route, so if you could like, go direct um we started in Lagomera, uh, we were in the uh, uh, so rowing race in 2009, it got delayed until 2010 by a couple of months. So it was due to start in December, got delayed till January because of a lot of hurricanes on the, the yeah. east coast of the states. but a bit later than normal. And so what you realise is that you can sit in a boat... basically you'll arrive on the other side of the atlantic maybe three or four months later even if you do no rowing or anything
0: just because
1: (laughs) of just because of the currents there's a uh, there's a high pressure that sits over the azores in which is mid-atlantic in about december january time and uh that got wiped out by the hurricane so we were literally rowing the whole way or it felt that Mm. so we didn't get much help from current and we certainly didn't get much help from weather but on day 73 uh, uh 280 miles from antigua so we'd already done 2900 miles so we'd already gone over 400 miles longer, further than you might expect to do mm-hmm. so when you're going up and down up and down backwards ah. because of bad weather bad it weather. adds a lot of mileage because i had an everest trip um so i I, like four days later i was flying to (laughs) nepal uh, (laughs) yeah no no it was it was messed up but like you know how many people can say they didn't complete the atlantic because they were Picked up by boat, flown home, and then uh, on Everest. You know, a few days later. Dude, no I, I was uh, I was kind of guiding on a trip, and it, like all my failures, it sounds like there's always a reason I try and find to explain it away. But so, <laughs> <laughs> so the Atlantic. It was a it was an amazing experience. Pretty tough psychologically to feel um, sometimes quite isolated. Um, as you can imagine, you know, your horizon is about two miles in every direction. Mm-hmm. Funny enough, the ocean changes from place to place and i can't really explain why but it feels and looks different maybe mm. temperature humidity you see a marine life that you can never imagine or wish to see you at the, on the coast you know huge whales dolphins um you were but, with you one know, other person When i was with one other person student, okay. and uh okay. you know we, we we had a you know it was a tough time for for both of us i think we when we started the race, neither of us were perhaps in the best place. I was in a new relationship to my now wife and leaving for a few months at a time wasn't you know the best thing for a relationship and <laughs> I think he just lost a relationship, so we started in kind of not the best fettle, and it kind of kind of continued that way but you know we made it work uh, but it's you know we had water maker problems because you realize you know this is a great advert for uh, the green environment you know you're using solar power to mm-hmm. generate uh, energy to power up your battery to have a, a water maker and if you don't have that you're not actually gonna you're not gonna do very well uh, you do have a manual water maker as a backup but you end up sweating more than you probably generate it's mm-hmm. like it's some uh, so an electronic uh, water maker is uh, an incredible thing so you know desalinates through a ceramic filter but that was never it never went well it was always filling up with water this this machine that was supposed to be kept completely dry every day we'd find like three or four inches of water in the cabinet moving up towards all the kind of vital parts so it was always a it was a real it's amazing how demanding worrying about water is water water everywhere not a drop to drink
0: yeah yeah Yeah. wow
1: so um but, yeah, so I ended up being picked up by boat. Marie-Cristal, um, my family, uh, my family had been in Antigua waiting for our arrival, which never came. Uh, oh, they wow. had to leave before we got there because just the weather was unpredictably, yeah, uh, poor for our, our crossing.
0: How close which did you, you get?
1: Think, um 280 miles, which for a rowboat, you might do that in a few days if you've right. got really great conditions. And That's uh, pretty close. Know, yeah, yeah, no, I could, you know, I could seeing rubbish in the water you know that's Uh, the depressing side of it uh you know uh plastic you know islands floating in the in the water Um, did
0: did that feel like a failure or i mean it doesn't sound like a failure i mean you were still out there that whole time you almost made it yeah i mean
1: that 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 is a i think it's still a bit of a gut blow if i'm being totally honest but 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 equally. Like, I, I get it. Again, it has to be clear that, that, you know, when you climb on a mountain, the summit should be an, a, an objective amongst other things. Right. And I think if you, if you wedge yourself to the sole objective in any trip, uh, I think you're always going to feel a bit disappointed um, if you don't make it. And if you do make it, it devalues all the other stuff that's gone into making that trip what it was. And so, yeah. you know, I learned stuff about electronics that I would never have known had I not. Got into learning how to make a water maker better. We were on a sat phone speaking to someone in the UK about how to fix, you know, a circuitry in a water maker. That's right. You know, it's like, my God, how could I could never have imagined that, you know, in a million years. And I'm terrible at DIY, but I, you know, doing this stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but but I've become a bit more handy as the uh, as the years have gone by. And then I, yeah. I kind of fall back on those those things. And if I'm worried about putting up a curtain rail, I just think, well you know, you've fixed a few people's hips over your time in surgery. So, um, you know, (laughs) if you can shove a, uh, shove a screw into someone's hip, you can probably put it into the wall without too much worry. True. So like, yeah, I always try and use my, 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 my experiences or my failures, all my successes to kind of guide where I'm, where I'm heading.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, And and failure is probably a harsh word. I mean, you know, it's all about the adventure, you know? Um, and if we're using, if we're throwing around the word failure, I failed on all sorts of different mountain projects and, and other things in my life. So, um, I, I was just curious, like how you felt at the end of that. Um, yeah, no
1: uh, failure. Definitely. I felt rushed really? out. I felt really de- uh, somewhat depressed by the whole, mm. the whole thing, but, but, but as I say in failure, you know, you, you become stronger and, uh, uh, and more able to deal with adversity You know, as you go through life. And yeah. if it always sends out your way, which how you'd like it to happen you know I think you become very very fragile when it actually doesn't go your way so when I see kids in an emergency department I'm the reason I'm struggling perhaps with words is I'm working night shifts at the moment so I'm just waking up to my night shift tonight but you know I say to kids I'm kind of I try to be honest with them because I think a lot of parents try and shelter them so much to try and make life seem perfect or try and protect them from any adversity but I think the sooner you kind of address that life is full of ups and downs and if you can embrace those downs you know uh, despite the ups being a lot more enjoyable I think it makes us a more durable just psychologically as well and you know you'll know from just wherever anyone lives there's so much mental illness in the world mm-hmm. from whatever reasons but 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 it's cumulative and one of those factors I'm sure is that we we, we lack that sense of durability that you see in third world children so much more you know they're left to the you know, kids mm-hmm. in the pool are playing in yakdung, and you know they've got snot coming out of their noses and no one's kind of rushing them to the doctor to <laughs> test them for COVID. do you know what i mean right, it's like right, right. but um uh, we won't touch on cover that'll be a yeah, that's a that's a pandora's box um <laughs> but um but yeah no so I, I think durability it's really it's a lot of, it's a big big thing for 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 people to learn at a young age if they can
0: for sure So I want to go back to your first Everest attempt. Um, So kind of walk me through the quick version of that. Like what was that experience like for you as someone who had never done anything like that before? Um, You know, you're doing it with other people, people that you've only known for probably a short amount of time. I'm guessing there's Sherpas, there's fear of death. Um, Yeah. Kind of walk me through that.
1: Yeah. So I'm a, i am I go in without. Uh, without enough real experience in a, in a high mountain environment, but I have climbed Cho so I've got that psychological uh, support that I've already been to eight thousand meters. It went well. I was pretty strong, and I didn't know I was going to be stronger at altitude. That was the kind of it just kind of turned out that way.
0: Ah, but you're so, using um, oxygen, right?
1: Yeah. So from Camp Three, you use oxygen. So seven thousand three hundred meters, about twenty four thousand feet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's the kind of accepted uh uh accepted norm on everest from camp three okay. but 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 sadly i think well, it's all debatable but but more and more these days people are using oxygen from lower on the mountain oh. to give them a more comfortable experience but um i've been up to 8, and uh and in, in 2005 jumping a few years forwards i was trying to do it without oxygen mm-hmm. um, but we lost a teammate on summit night and uh, he died and you know, it was a shitty storm and the whole thing went, you know, just tiny little things can suddenly become a massive thing at high altitude. And uh,
0: this yeah. is on your first attempt.
1: That's on my second attempt. Okay. Second attempt. Okay. But the, the, yeah, the first year I had no, you know, I hadn't even thought about not doing it with oxygen. And sure. what you realize in this game is that um, it sounds really good talking to you right now. If I could say I'd done it without oxygen, you'd probably be more impressed than uh, had I done it just with oxygen, which is the case, sadly. So I can't impress you with my, my uh, <laughs> physical prowess. No, no. But, um, but what you realize is that this blows a lot of brain cells. So if you've got brain cells to blow, or you don't really need to, when I mean blow, destroy, kill, destroy, you know, destructed, uh, never coming back. And um, there's been quite a few uh, MRI studies of high altitude climbers after high altitude exposure for a number of weeks. And, you know, there's, you know, huge lacunae, which are like puddles of liquid inside the brain. There are uh, ischemic areas all after uh, exposure to prolonged hypoxia. And that's not everyone. So some of us are more prone than others. And I've never been interested enough or worried enough to get an MRI scan after a trip. And I think I probably will keep it that way. Because I think if you see if you see the damage that you've done you'll never you'll never likely risk your brain again um, but it's uh it, sorry it is um uh, it's a thing I'm conscious of and I when I was a young buck you know uh, in my late 20s I was thinking well that doesn't matter I've got plenty of brain cells or sure. I thought it did but look how I've ended up you know so um yeah no sometimes the the sanest wisest advice is caution and uh, uh, and don't throw it all to the to the the chance gods. You know, actually, you know, be 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 a bit more cautious in your approach, and then things mm. can often work out best. Mm. I was on jumping around in two thousand six. I was in the Lhotse Kullu. Cool I was trying to climb Lhotse, the fourth highest mountain in the world, mm. and then Everest a few days later. Oh, wow! And uh, uh, I got to one hundred and fifty meters from the summit. Uh, we were there was no rope in the Kullu. Cool something I thought I'd never be doing. Never, never. I was not a put it all on the line the kind of climate i was follow the fixed lines be you know be strong up and down in and out you know thank you very Mm -hmm. much and thanks Mm -hmm. to the shepherds and by the way shepherds are what makes it all happen and there's no doubt Mm -hmm. that i wouldn't be here talking to you if it had not been for my amazing shepherd friends who who put their lives on the line you know on every trip and it's just their work you know it's a privilege for them too but nonetheless it's just their job and they're Mm -hmm. risking a lot Mm -hmm. but uh yeah, there I am at uh, 150 meters in the summit. I can see it like literally. It's a very narrow, cool work. It's an amazing, epic climb. And uh, my crampon snaps off. There's a plastic uh, retainer over the foot of the, the front of my boot, and it snaps in the cold and just falls down. And we're, we're kind of potholing in deep snow. Uh, I've literally got two arms um, well, my axe and my other Ax, arm. Yep. And my So I'm in the, the snow, but the thing pops off and just starts going careering down the slope about 20 meters down it falls into a kind of hole that we've made on the way up and okay. there no rope nothing i'm like shit you know but the summit is so close my sherpa friend uh, Guruman he climbs down gets the cramp on and kind of attaches it back to my boot and it's kind of it's a bit like a tooth that's wobbling in your your mouth before you lose it you know as a kid and uh I phoned Henry by way, radioed Henry, and I said, Henry, you know, it's been a problem. We were the last ones. Uh, my other two team, teammates had turned around, and I said, Henry, you know, this is the way it is. I'm really close to the summit. I think, okay, I can definitely do it physically. There's no problem coming down. Might be, I don't know. What do you think? You know, I wanted him to say carry on. Uh, coming
0: down is the biggest worry right
1: yeah yeah coming down anyway without any rope before it was only a section of maybe 100 meters up and down but it was still something that i thought i would never you know you know like i've climbed really big mountains and been in risky situations but even now i have a healthy sense of exposure you know uh you know if you're you can walk along a pavement or a sidewalk without any thought of falling off you know, it's only a f- you know two feet wide, but you know you're not going to fall off. But when you're on a small, you know, ledge and it may be a foot or two feet wide, that you could walk down the, the the main street in any city in America and you would never fall off. But it's amazing the mind games that get played when you're uh, yeah. suddenly in a situation that you know freezing cold. The wind suddenly picks up and you're you know you're you're down the hood. It's being buffeted by the wind. You've got a mask on, you know, the old hypoxic uh, anxiety kicks in, yes. paranoia. You know, it doesn't take much to set off the, the, the minder games. Um, but Henry said to me, Rob, I hear what you're saying. I think the summit's in your grasp, but better to be a live lamb than a dead lion. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, better to be a live lamb than a dead lion. And of course, we all think we're the lions, but yeah. actually... Yeah, maybe there's something in that. So, you know, I came down, I summited Everest uh, five days later. So I did two 8,000s in a very short space of time. Uh, um, I remember I got okay. down, we ate loads of uh, chocolate brownies, I think it was, something like that. <laughs> just a load of uh, massive pile. And then the next day I went back up and uh, yeah, within a few days I was on the summit of Everest in a beautiful blue sky day, just our team on the summit, five wow. people, four people. Uh, yeah. It was incredible.
0: Wow, wow what an adventure so you're like the king of adversity i mean you, know, <laughs> you <sighs> miss that's it almost all the way to the top and then you have to turn around come back down and then you just suck it up and you go right back up the next day
1: that's... yeah that's that's a that's a psychological hit when i've uh, i've done Everest uh, eight times and two of those years have been double summits so um, oh. so i was in the first group of westerners to climb everest twice in a a, a season as it turned out it was a week uh, wow so, um, and so I, in 2000, for 2007, I was asked to join Kenton, Kenton Cool, who's a, a relatively famous British climber um, who, and a great friend. Uh, he said, you know, would you mind coming out and joining me on a trip to help get some people who are, you know, I'm climbing with? I've got five people. It's too many for just me. And I said, like, wow, you know, amazing. I'm getting paid to go to Everest. Mm-hmm. This is, I was just uh, you know I was a hobby climber and now I'm suddenly
0: dream come true. Uh,
1: yeah, and I always said I was a high altitude T boy. but like you know you realize that having been there before it gives you a, it does give you credibility and by then I climbed up to the summit twice. and in 2006, my second summit, um, there weren't that many Westerners who had done double you know two summits in total. Right. So in 2007 comes by, we have illness in our team. so the first group ends up being just two people. Gets to the summit, come back down. But the three who are ill, they kind of want to go, so they still want to go up, and they're getting ready to go up or feel well enough to go up, as it turns out, and exactly seven days later. So um, Kenton said, You know, do you think you can? And I was like, I was like, Well, if he thinks he can, I definitely will make sure that I can. You know, it was <laughs> in that, you know. But uh, you realize, you know, you see your first team leaving to go home. You know, you see them off, you know, yeah. you, you, we've just got down. We, we summited the first summit and we got back to the South Coal that same night. Then the next day, normally people go from the South Col to Camp 2, so from uh, like 26,000 feet to around 21,000 feet. Okay. And we decided that we would uh, go all the way to base camp. So you don't normally get people going from 8,000 down to 5,000 in a day on Everest. But yeah. we did that. We had a day of rest and then we were back up again the next day and that's quite a physically it was demanding but more so psychologically it was kind of tough to go back up to camp three have a shitty night you know sleeping Mm -hmm. at 7300 meters but in that whole trip you know i've been up and down three or four times to 7300 so it was like a new a new normal so it was um it was good man it was really great and um you know to be part of uh, it was willie men i guess he did it with one of his team uh teammates and uh kenton and then myself i was the third one on the day to do it uh you know you know historically great to be a westerner doing something for the first time but chef has been doing this for, for many many years so it's it's really nothing in the scheme of things but but it's something and then that that kind of that really made me think oh, actually i've got something in terms of the juice at high altitude. So I definitely have a, you know, this is not a kind of thing I've trained for. It's not something that, you know, maybe it's been gifted. I don't know. I don't really? mean that in a kind of jokey sense. But I've got a good physiology, definitely. You know, I'm a, I am ai can gain weight. I can lose weight. But, I, you know, I'm psychologically strong. And something about attitude, uh, uh, as I say to my, my good friend, Ang Nuru, a very strong shepherd who I've climbed with many times, the higher we go, the stronger we get. And of course, we're not getting stronger, but comparatively, we seem to be drawing away from, you know, uh, most other people.
0: Other people, okay. And there are
1: there are other Western climbers who are probably, I'm sure, stronger than me. But there are, you know, I, I'm I'm in a category of 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 Western climber for one reason or another that seems to do pretty well at altitude and not be wow. too affected.
0: What do you can can you attribute that to anything? I mean, does that go back to your days in the military or? Where, where does yeah, that come, yeah. or is it just who knows?
1: I think it. Uh, I think physiology is something that you. You. I think a bit like training for endurance. You can train to have uh, tolerance to you know the the bonk that people wow. have in long distance running. I think you can train your body to, if you look at the science of it, start metabolizing fat at a higher Mm. rate. So you Mm. can actually generate energy from stores that you have already. And I've got plenty of fat stores, you know, it's like, so that's uh, when we, uh, we we certainly have more for everyone has more fat stores than glucose in the liver and striated muscle. You know, you exhaust that, then you're, you're in that kind of bonk phase, but if you can quickly metabolize fat uh, and the secret is how to, do you make your body more efficient at at metabolizing fat that's the the way to go in kind of endurance activities but when you look at the science of the more recent science studies have have been looking at in terms of uh, mitochondrial handling of oxygen at a cellular level so when you breathe in oxygen it goes into your lungs it crosses a a capillary membrane in your lung and in the alveoli the air sacs it gets transferred by by blood you know to your heart it gets pumped around your body but the oxygen has to move from a higher concentration in your blood to a lower concentration in your tissues it's kind of a passive movement there's no kind of active pump pushing oxygen into your tissues and those tissues are your brain your your muscles you know depending on whatever you're using at that time that you need and so there's, when you have very little oxygen available, there's very little oxygen in your bloodstream, therefore the the gradient of oxygen being delivered to tissues gets less and less. Mm. And it's, uh, I think what we're realizing is that there are people genetically predisposed to a a kind of selective advantage in hypoxia at a kind of very cellular level, the mitochondria, like this tiny energy powerhouse inside your cell, which is what converts oxygen, a bit of sugar, glucose, and a bit of water into atp this kind of amazing energy unit that we use mm-hmm. so for endurance athletes it's about how do you make that process more efficient in terms of energy delivery and how do you get oxygen to cells in a better way so things like beetroot you know beetroot which dilates mm-hmm. theoretically dilates you know uh, small vessels in your you know your striated, you know your running muscles you know, if you get vasodilat- or sort of venodilo- sorry, vasodilatation, so dilating of those blood vessels, you can, in theory, get more blood, nutrients, and oxygen to your tissues, which might make you a better triathlete or mm-hmm. endurance athlete mm-hmm. in the 14ers. So mm-hmm. it's, um, who knows? It, you know, uh, there's a bit of physiology, physiological luck. I don't, there's no reason, though, because I'm from the, the low a low country. There's, I'm in the county of Kent, which is where I'm from in England. Mm-hmm. It's all at sea level. So there's no, I uh, had no, um, no adaptive reason for being good at altitude. But I think, again, I always say to people, uh, mountains are about, you know, 90% psychology. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's not so 90%, but there's a, there's such a huge amount that goes into, you know, that mental strength uh, 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 when you're in adversity. Um, you can't ignore the signs of high altitude illness and i'm I guess that is luck or physiology, yeah. but good preparation as well but i uh, I think once you're at that high altitude, you just need to 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 play the mind games and and deal with a situation that's tough to take and that mm-hmm. that gives you such a benefit there, on yeah. End.
0: yeah, yeah, so it's like it's like getting over that that extreme bonk just over and over and over again, um, yeah so are you uh adapting your diet before these big adventures as well are you trying to become fat adapted or changing anything differently
1: well i think uh the answer to that is no but in retrospect we've been looking more and more at the science of uh adaptation and how you 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 increase your chances because in mountaineering senses nutrition has been so badly uh, looked at in the sense of how do you give someone at eight thousand meters a fighting chance of doing their best on summit day Mm -hmm. that's never been a kind of it's all been about getting the oxygen muscle there the tent there the sherpas there the rope there just getting the guy or girl there in time to have their summit attempt food and uh, uh, hydration hydration's been a kind of thing you know certainly we know that dehydration can be a trigger for high altitude illness or certainly can or certainly it can mimic uh, high altitude illness, so you'd never kind of want to set off with a really stumping headache in case that was actually cerebral edema on its way. Mm-hmm. So, you so dehydration can give you a stumping headache, so it's best to just avoid dehydration. And certainly, being well hydrated helps to deal with altitude illnesses. But, um, yeah, nutrition wise, what you know, we would be uh, we just have boiled in the bag food so it's easy yeah. to clean up the pan right. and you can either drink the water thereafter but there's not actually that many calories in those those boil in the bag foods it's like three yeah I, I, more and more you can get like a two-man serving uh, or two person serving excuse me and uh, you might get six or seven hundred calories but if you think about your day it's uh, my first ever summit was 21 hours long mm. I didn't eat anything my two gel bars froze in my kind of down <laughs> suit and uh, I my water bottle which I funny enough I was trying to keep it hot so I put it in a neoprene covering this is what you learn you know so I then put yeah. that inside my down jacket and that froze inside my uh. down jacket <laughs> had I had I taken the neoprene thing off and just put a hot water bottle inside it would have one kept me warm because I got cold as well uh, uh, and it wouldn't have frozen because my body heat would have kept it at least liquid so those are just simple things you learn from, from experience. Um, but yeah, no, I've come a long way. So I'm constantly drinking, eating, and, and you see loads of people ignoring just basic needs in a high altitude scenario. You've got a mask on goggles. People don't want mm-hmm. to stop because they feel they're going to, I don't know, get left behind. Yeah. You know, you're not going to get left behind, but mm-hmm. it's a yeah, highly underestimated part of it. And I think the research and a drive to improve mountaineering nutrition, uh, we help both runners or climbers in that high altitude environment. But like doing the 14, you know, um, doing the Nolans or doing any kind of challenge in, the, in the, the, you know, in Colorado, that's clearly gonna depend a lot on nutrition and that's a major focus for, you know, um, for people trying to attempt such great events that I've been listening to. Is it, is it Eric Lewis uh, two weeks ago? Okay. Uh, Eric Lee. Lee, excuse me.
0: Eric Lee. We're just listening
1: to him, you know, between mountains. He's like feeding and massaging Mm -hmm. and like doing everything you can just to maintain, you know, maintain that that capacity to go into the next stage. So it's it's already a much more advanced stage than mountaineering, which so little has gone into increasing performance.
0: So you're just trying to get the most efficient food up to these camps. Um, The easiest food to cook, which is just, you know, I don't know what is it like rice, beans, just super simple foods, carbohydrates mainly.
1: Yeah, so so like most uh, most Western people will end up taking boiled in a bag food. Uh, cheese is a great one, salami, ah, another great thing, you know. Okay. But sometimes you know appetite's really suppressed by hypoxia. Ah, yep. So uh, there's this you see people just they don't feel hungry, so they don't eat. And I'd be like, you just can't do that. You have to eat. You have to get calories in, otherwise how can you expect your your body to perform with nothing in it and Mm -hmm. this is why a lot of uh, people do badly at altitude is that they I think it's a bit of self-maintenance and I think you just have to push through that kind of lack of lack of of hunger and I appreciate you know when you're feeling crap and you don't want to eat the last thing you're gonna actively try to do is eat a big meal when someone's telling you to do it so it's more than just me telling someone to eat but you can get the you know you can encourage someone a bit of encouragement they tend to get going and then suddenly you see them you know improving their chances in front of you it's quite okay. it's very satisfying that okay but the, the sherps they um they're cooking rice they're they really aren't changing their diet rice uh sometimes they take a bit of meat and yeah. uh they have a um, they're six or seven in a three-man tent you've got like westerners freezing their balls off two people in a tent Yeah you know and you've got the Sherpas all sitting upright they're not laying down to sleep we all think we need to lay down to sleep but most people aren't sleeping because it's so uncomfortable the the cold the hypoxia the just the whole psychological stress of going for a summit attempt Mm -hmm. The Sherpas are laughing joking five of them sitting around a big fire in the middle of the tent things you'd never do because you might burn the tent down but but they they clearly it's not their first rodeo they know exactly (laughs) how it's going to go
0: yeah
1: you know they're venting their tent they're not getting poisoned with carbon monoxide you know they they're 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 adapted here psychologically they're adapted here physiologically in their lungs and their heart and they just know know how to do it
0: for sure yeah wow um i'm guessing with all your time that you've spent out there you've seen some tragedy over the years
1: and sadly yeah
0: yeah can you talk about some of that
1: yeah yeah sure um i guess um i had direct my first direct link to tragedy was in 2005 um Rob Milne was one of our teammates um he got pretty unwell towards the end of the trip um but our trip was elongated by bad weather so we went into June to try and summit um which was like pretty unheard of we I think our summit attempt was the 4th of June so we'd been there at the end we got there at the end of March you imagine that Oh, wow. Just the kind of the shit show that all turned out mm. to be. And um, at Camp 2, waiting for our slot, this weather window that actually never came, um, we ended up treating an Iranian woman who uh, was left for dead just above the South Coal and being brought down in cerebral and pulmonary edema. And it's where I kind of learned that a good climbing guide who's done lots of experience can kind of help much more than, uh, you know, some wet-behind-the-ears British doctor who 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 just is on their second trip and hasn't really seen any major you know medical disaster in the mountains. Yeah. So um, uh, I helped her with a, a couple of climbing guides, and we helped we helped get her back, and a Sherpa carried her down two days later, and and she survives to tell the tale, and I'm still in contact with her via email. Oh, wow. It was, wow. It was a pretty you know quite an amazing thing, you know, examining a, a, an Iranian woman with all the kind of cultural delicacy or. Uh, yeah delicacies that were were related to that and uh, you know she was able to feel at ease with a whole bunch of western effectively men around her trying to help her and mm-hmm. it was a great thing for mostly american people helping an iranian woman you know and those kind of things are often lost in you know political debates actually at the kind of human the everyday human level we're all getting on
0: hey sorry How you doing? i'm oh, good no sorry it's about crazy, that isn't
1: it? Uh, <laughs> we made it back Wi-Fi sorry Wi-Fi no. uh, i think i've got a fairly solid connection but you know you yeah, can it up, can you?
0: yeah same here it's okay it's okay i'll piece it together
1: yeah uh, sorry about that so i think okay. um yeah so rob i think we were just talking about rob and uh going up to um going up to from camp two to the the, the south Cole, he got slower and slower and uh none of us we were we, were, we had no guide we were uh, a team of eight or nine climbers and we were kind of in it just for ourselves kind of the worst aspect of commercial climbing in some ways you know you're not already friends you turn up you meet new people and and so we were just like moving ahead and, and thinking about you know the, the summit the next day and we get to the south coal and rob um rob sharing a tent with somebody else uh who's a good friend and he was my good friend mike he, he's no no medic but he was doing some video footage and some ironic in some ways he said you know geez rob you know you look like you look you look like you're dead you know <laughs> he's got a british sense of sarcastic humor and little did we know a few hours later he went on to die but you know rob's yeah. got purse purse lip breathing he can barely he can't say anything he can't say a word because he's so breathless you know when you when you look at that and realize how things can go wrong and it's just a kind of sense of misadventure that didn't need to have happened you realize that you know climbing big mountains is a terribly selfish thing to do that only you get mm-hmm. something out of there's not many people um, at home who get much out of it i mm. guess it's uh yeah it's, it's one of those things you have to you know really uh consolidate in your thinking particularly as if you have a family or you know close close friends but so that's that was the first real episode and then you know i've seen big avalanches and been involved in big rescues on the mountain but i think probably the worst tragedies were were 2014 and 2015 and my now wife Mary Christelle, had come on both of these trips and in 14 we were at the beginning of the expedition we were at camp at uh, base camp we hadn't even climbed yet we just got to base camp two days earlier i think and uh there's a there's I get a shout Rob come to the mess tent so uh, Henry has been informed that there's been a massive syrac fall uh, and he said you know are you in are you in the are you in shape to go up you know they need help it sounds like there's been a lot of people hurt so uh you know I, I got with a, a shipper friend and we got with a massive medical kit at this point we've now got f- choppers it's the era of, of lightweight choppers flying in being able to Touchdown oh, sure. in the icefall. It's incredible, you know, when you think about how things have come on since '96, when sure. it was a treacherous landing at Camp One mm. to pick up um, Beck Weathers, who was, uh, you know, in no position to come down from mm. from Camp One. So we uh, we went up. We dealt with one of the the injured parties uh, on the ice, but but basically, I think 16 people were killed in the icefall from a serac fall. Um, mainly, um, uh, I think, Alpine ascents, Sherpas, and some other teams, I forget exactly the, the order, but like Barita Sherpa, a good friend who he lives in Seattle, he was there and digging out friends, you know, that he's known for years and years, and the uh, the courage and the, the the humility of the man, uh, you know, I can't s- say enough about him, but a number of people were, were, you know, digging out friends, and you can only imagine what that that's like, and that's a major tragedy 16 people being killed and all Sherpas and it, it brought on the advent of gear being helicoptered up to camp one which is now what is happening on the mountain instead of Sherpas going many 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 times through the icefall with logistical gear that they don't really and shouldn't be putting their life at risk to do um mm. so it's a dangerous place the the kumbu icefall and um very unstable higher up uh, and you know to get hit from above is a thing you've never really you know accounted for so so the route does go under the west shoulder of everest which is this huge kind of triangular face of rock uh with you know hanging ice or axe uh, uh, on top and then um, yeah these 16 people were were killed and it led to a huge political kind of fallout um the sherpas basically went on strike mm. um uh and Rightly so, it didn't really feel like climbing uh, again that season. Were they de- like
0: demanding more money, or what was? Yeah, that? so
1: so like I, I'm not completely 100, you know, uh, up to date with the you know the, the the privileges of of Sherpa insurance, but Sherpa insurance, I think, gave them up to ten thousand dollars, or uh, maybe even less at the time. But but a lot of that money goes into their yeah their equivalent of a funeral, a puja. Mm-hmm. so there's a lot of money paid to get a blessing because for them culturally it's extremely important how their death is dealt with because it has a direct impact upon how how they'll be coming back um so and then there's no kind of support for the families thereafter so good companies will have a kind of network of support that continues to to help families over years and often you know you have to hope that the, the team members in uh, in a group will then go on to have a collection of, of of funds that carries on helping them over years. And, and Dave Morton, a good friend, uh, again based in Seattle, he uh, an amazing climbing guide, you know, cameraman, uh, a bit of does a bit of everything, but but a great human being at the end of the, the line, which is the most important accolade I can throw upon him. Mm. He uh, he with uh, Melissa not and probably some uh, friends started the Juniper Fund, and the Juniper Fund is a uh, kind of an insurance that kicks in automatically for uh, families who've lost uh, a climbing Sherpa, generally father or husband, uh, 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 to a climbing accident in the Himalayas, and so um, that pays. Uh, I think it's a thousand dollars per child per year for up to five years, uh, or something in that order. So this is an amazing charitable fund that's been started and you know continues to thrive based on you know contributions from. You know, I guess wealthier Western climbers. In fact, not Correct. anyone, uh, but it's mainly Western donations which lead to this this uh, this kind of uh, uh, this organisation being being viable. But the government in Nepal, which takes ten thousand dollars for every permit, or even more now, in fact, for each climber who wants to climb Everest, uh, so they're getting huge revenue streams from Western climbers. It, it was considered, and, and I would argue, it is it is the case they're not putting enough back into the region from that huge financial kick from having Everest as their, you know, one of their major uh, tourist drivers, but also major fund makers, you know, there's a huge amount of money coming into the Kathmandu government, but not really being, the ripple effects, not really being touched by the people in terms of the governmental uh, money being taken for climbing Everest. Mm. Of course, the region benefits just from having tourists there, so tea houses and, and, you know, people selling Souvenirs, you know, that's all kind of blossoming, or was until COVID. But I mean, those kind of things have, have really, yeah, really been successful in the Kumbu. But but yeah, from a governmental support point of view, there's 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 nothing. So um, yeah, so this, the expedition effectively got called off. Um, you know, having to deal with you know sixteen dead bodies coming out of the ice uh, was awful. Um, Mary Christelle my wife, she's a cardiologist, and she um. We were actually trying to do some science projects on the mountain, so we we had a uh, uh, like a small portable uh, ECG machine, an EKG uh, in in American, and um, you know the great adage about hypothermia is that you're not dead until you're warm and dead. So if you're freezing cold, you know even if you've got no pulse, you shouldn't really be making any calls on yeah. on uh, status uh, mm-hmm. unless it's clear. But but you know most of these deaths were traumatic, and so you know suddenly the the EKG machine to to try and establish some electrical activity uh, uh, wasn't really necessary. Mm -hmm. So that was uh, 14. And then we went back in 15 uh, thinking, well, you know, we've had our bad luck here. And like I, you know, 2005 was the one year where I didn't summit. I summited three, six, double summit in seven. Uh, uh, 2008 I summit, 2010 I double summit. Uh, the only year I hadn't summited was, uh, sorry, 2012 as well. The only year I hadn't summited was 2005. So to have this big, you know, I was on a good success rate, very good success rate. So to have 2014 come along uh, selfishly was a kind of no opportunity to climb. Tragic for us. This is awful. Actually, you know, 16 people have just been killed. We need to get a sense of reality and Mm -hmm. suck it up. And and we did, and uh, we went back with good faith, in good faith, to have a uh, that's where we met John Doness, um, who yes. I think is uh, okay. linked to him.
0: Yep, goodbye, John. You, man.
1: Yeah, so John, uh, John, and Jennifer came out. They climbed uh, uh, Lobuche East uh, Island Peak. They, you know, they, they, they integrated and assimilated into the area amazingly well, as you would imagine. And um, you know, lifelong friendships with Tundu, who were going to be killed in a few years after their their first meeting with him, but. Mm that year there was a massive earthquake and so earthquake, we're yeah. we're we're at Camp one and um we're uh, we just arrived and i'm collecting ice stacks for people to to start brewing to get hydrated you know i'm always trying to think about don't sleep do nothing get yourself brewing get yourself drinking so you're going to prevent that dehydration headache mm-hmm. so i don't have to send you down with what might be an altitude headache later on and then um, I'm uh, I'm literally, I'm standing up outside my tent, just looking around. It's kind of cloudy in the Western Kung. It's a beautiful place. It's a stunning place. You're in between uh, Noopsi, maybe the 16th or 17th highest mountain in the world, the west shoulder of Everest. You're looking at Lhotse. You can just catch the summit uh, in the distance. I um, mean, it's a fantastic place. Uh, you're in the lap of the gods, literally. Mm. And then the, the earth start, or the, the ice start shaking under my feet. Uh, and I've, been there many many times and I've seen uh, ice uh, implosions so literally blocks of ice at the top of the icefall will uh, implode and fall down so I thought we were on a block of ice that was about to suck us away to oblivion and it's a weird sense of uh, thinking geez this is it Uh, what do I say to anyone (laughs) it started shaking 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 and I, and I would estimate i was moving 50 centimeters forwards and backwards like it was massive translational movement and everyone's starting to scream in the tents what is it what is it and i just remember in 2005 we had a massive uh, uh, avalanche from the west shoulder of everest and i thought shit it's avalanche or mm. well, we're going to definitely have an avalanche mm. uh, and i just i remember seven people were injured at that avalanche in 2005 and uh, three of them got blown out of their tents with nothing, you know, they were just wearing a base layer. So imagine being blown out of your tent, no shoes, no helmet, no down jacket, you know, Mm -hmm. blown out of your tent from the shockwave of the the avalanche, you get partially buried and then you get freezing cold. So I just said, you know, get your helmets on, get your boots on, get down low. And they were all in their tents, were shaking, and um, I'm just waiting for the, the avalanche. So I I've now decided it's an avalanche. It goes on for ages, a minute, a minute and a half. Wow. And then it stops, you hear all the avalanches and we get dusted, we don't get directly hit. Uh, but it's amazing, the, the dynamics of the, the, the kind of thermoclimactic change that suddenly happens when you get this movement of snow, ice and, and obviously this earthquake, which, it would, which is what it was. And we survived and I was like, geez, I don't know what that was but we need to tell base camp that we're all fine because that that was some major do they would have heard that at base camp for sure that was either a, a massive avalanche higher up the valley which triggered this kind of icy movement and but that was for a long time you know so i i, I do the right thing in what i'm thinking i'm on the radio base camp base camp you know rob the base camp um uh, henry comes online he sounds really really shaken henry todd is our base camp manager for want of a better word he's the expedition leader I guess is the more appropriate way of describing him and a good friend by now and he just said it's all gone I said what do you mean Henry he said "Uh, it's all gone there's blood everywhere people have been blown away and like actually our our base camp was destroyed Um, what happened the earthquake had triggered um behind base camp maybe about a kilometer away it's a nice, beautiful mountain. It's coned mountain called Kuba Pumori, and then to its right, as you're looking at it from base camp, is Trang. And somewhere between, from Pumori or Trang, a whole shelf of ice uh, dropped based on the, the the movements from the earthquake. So the earthquake triggered a massive avalanche, and it just ripped through the center of base camp where our camp was. Hmm. So um, so there were. Uh, Amazingly, when you think about it, only 18 people were killed. I think, from what I understand, many, many people injured. Like yeah. tent poles going through legs, broken Oof. bones. You know, we we lost uh, three of our our shepherd team at base camp. And they were oh. killed outright. And um, when we, you know, when we got down eventually, uh, we went to our tent. And, you know, everything was covered covered in you know this mass collection of ice, rock, snow. You know just chaos it was like a tornado had ripped through base camp and scattered a lot of snow on top at the end but uh our where Mary, Crystal, and i had been sleeping only a few days before uh there was a boulder you know if, if you think about a uh, north face b25 the size of a north face b25 would just come along and crushed our tent mm. like if it had been nighttime you know for sure we would have been we would have been dead 100 percent so, um, you know, that's a kind of a humbling, humbling experience. And um, it's somewhat ironic because Paul Castell, you know, I say this in a kind of, I'm not forgetting that people have died and people have lost everything from that. But um, Paul Maricastel, she's come out to Everest twice to, to, you know, with the best will and intention to try and climb it in, in, in noble style and do her best on the mountain. And she's, she should only had one chance to get to Cam 1 in, in two years of trying. Not for... Um through any fault of our own. But Mm. that's a minor point, I guess, in the the footnote of history, when you compare it to to what we went through. But that that kind of just triggered an even uh, more significant part of our lives, I suppose, which is trying to give something back. And so we we wanted to do something good by one of of our team members who died, um, Kumar. He comes from a very impoverished village way down the valley. And we knew that he had four children. And I'd climbed, I hadn't climbed with him. He was more of a, a cook number. Cook so he was like, you know, making water, feeding us, always smiling. He was known as, you know, Smiler. And Bukumar, uh, he left four children, a wife, and uh, Mary Christelle was quite forceful in that she wanted to support uh, uh, one of his daughters. He had two boys and two daughters. And it's always the boys who get um, perhaps advantaged more than, than the daughters in sense of education. Hmm. Um, and it's just a kind of a sad fact that, 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 that I guess people invest more in a boy's education than a girl's education it mm. seems a better bet so we wanted to try and school one of the girls in Kathmandu and uh, we managed to raise $30,000 in uh, the, the hometown where Magistar lives and it was all to initially to try and help school uh, one of uh, his daughters but finally the mum wanted to keep her kids around her and who wouldn't you know why would you want to send your daughter to a boarding school in Kathmandu to give her a great education when you need her around you to to you know pull out the vegetables from the the fields but also Mm -hmm. to to give you that kind of psychological and and familial support that you need after you've just lost your husband Mm -hmm. so instead of Sending it to school in Kathmandu, we ended up trying to repair the school that was destroyed in the earthquake in Chescombe. So we now have this uh, incredible project of uh, 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 rebuilding a school, which is now completed. Um, Chescombe got awarded as one of the best rural uh, schools in, in in Nepal uh, recently. Uh, we managed to get an internet company to come in and provide th- a free 3G service uh, to the people of Chescombe. So now they're online. They're getting uh, online uh, courses from uh, Toronto, from Kathmandu. Uh, we're always looking for other people to 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 come in and help. Yeah. Um, a charitable organisation in Canada uh, helped us um, with laptops, so there's now forty-five laptops oh, uh, wow. in, in the school, and it's it's kind of uh, you know, I, I it's, it's Mary Cristal's amazing drive and effort who got all of that arranged, and I can take very little credit for that, but. It makes you realize the the bigger picture of what we're all up to and that that you know actually you know these these amazing physical achievements we're all getting involved with actually there there is a ripple effect and if we can bring mm-hmm. good at the same time as getting something out of uh, a challenge that we're doing uh, particularly if we're in a third world country doing something crazy there um you know all the better if someone else can get the benefit as well and so it's a kind of a we're at this kind of funny stage of life where uh we're still doing lots of things going out hiking in the you know the back country where we live but just recently we had a daughter and, and COVID mm-hmm. just like uh cut any chances of travel anyway mm-hmm. so these bigger projects uh are, are, are kind of somewhat on the ice at the moment maybe literally maybe, maybe, maybe more metaphorically anyway not not, <laughs> not literally but um yeah i can't wait to get back to nepal we had planned to take our daughter who's six months old uh setting up to namche which is a you know three thousand meters uh this autumn, oh, uh, and cool. let's, uh, get back our links with the school, but but you know it'll all come back. It's mm-hmm. uh, you know mm-hmm. we remain optimistic. Mm-hmm. But there you go. And there's a from from disaster comes some good. <laughs> so um, yeah, do some good is a kind of uh, I think an addition we all Absolutely. need to take into our uh, yeah. daily lives.
0: That's a beautiful thing. I I can appreciate that for sure. Um I mean sh- shed some insight on this for me because there's like this rumor and this may be even a touchy subject for you I'm not even sure if if I'm out of line by asking this but there seems to be this rumor that like Everest is like a graveyard and there's all these bodies up there um like what are your thoughts on that and is there any truth behind that
1: Um it, well the, yeah there is some truth in that but uh, the reason why I went back a second time was um for me because I had some friends going back and that's how I met Rob Milne who ended up dying on that 2005 trip so by now I've been on Everest twice and uh, had no business going back I think uh, that uh, I'll, I'll tell you the exact reason why I went back in 2005 on the first summit we had a really tough summit day and I didn't get any photograph on the summit it was a kind of whiteout. we could have been sitting you know you and I could have been sitting uh, you know, I, I, I'm trying to think about, uh, what's the uh, crucifix? Is it the crucifix in uh, one of the 14,000s? Uh, 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 Holy Cross. Holy Cross, sorry. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I, I've climbed up the little Kuwar on Holy Cross. And it's a lovely little, uh, beautiful climb with some great friends I have out in Colorado. And um, But, you know, you could get to the, we could have got to the summit and it'd been cloudy and you wouldn't have known if we had been on the summit of Everest or on the Holy Cross, you know, and, and both are equally fantastic, by the way. So I, you know, I, my, my kind of superficial side said, "Well, I've got to go back and get a photo." But of course, that—that's <laughs> um—that that is highly superficial. And I hate saying that, and I, th- I think that was one of the drivers initially. But obviously, there's a lot more <laughs> to it than that. So the 2005 trip didn't work out, and then one of the teammates from six, he said, "That's uh, from 2005." Said we need to get Rob's body now because what had happened? He he died at around 8,100, 8,200 meters. So that's um. Maybe 600 feet out of base, out of the South Coal, he kind of fell on his ice axe and, and, and passed just by a kind of rock band. Uh, once you get out of uh, of the, this kind of pyramid of ice that you you climb up to get through into a little rock, um, a rock band that you pass through on the right hand side before you get to the balcony. So, between the balcony and the South Coal, uh, Rob died. So when we came down, we I remember vividly because there were two doctors on the trip, myself and Simon, who's an orthopaedic surgeon from from Melbourne. We kind of um, we took a photograph. Uh, we were thinking about you know uh, a death certificate for his wife with proof. You know you can't just you know turn up with nothing. And we we took his camera and uh, I think he had a chain around his neck which we removed and and took with us and his wife has. And then we, you know, we did all the things in the embassy at the end. And so it was all kind of done reasonably. We get fined, I think, $4,000 for leaving rubbish on the mountain. The bodies considered rubbish on the mountain. So there's no real desire to leave bodies on mountains from commercial. You got fined? Yeah. So that's how it works. Yeah. No, but that's, I mean, not us personally, but the trip in, in you know, in its totality. Okay. So ultimately it's a, it's a, it's a net loss to the to the owner of the expedition, but that's, you know, I think uh, when someone's died, you know, don't really give it to us. You just, you know, you suck it up. Mm-hmm. It's kind of crazy regulation that, that has no business being mm-hmm. being used. But they consider that as rubbish. So um, the next year, uh, someone said, "You know, I want to go back uh, to get his body down." And it sounds like a really noble, vainglorious thing to do—to try and get a human body down from Everest. And what I can say is that in the pursuit of trying to save someone who's almost dead, or bringing down the body of someone who is dead, you risk many lives to do that. And that takes a big, it's mainly Sherpas. There's not many Western people who go up and risk their lives to bring a dead body down. And certainly if it's a living body, there might be a, a Westerner overseeing it. But physiologically, most most Western people on their first trip up Everest don't have the the, the 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 punch to be able to push through, carry a human body down. And a dead human body is not an easy thing to mm-hmm. get down uh, rock ledges ice cliffs um uh, without endangering yourself and it probably takes about seven to eight people at that altitude to mm. actually mount a rescue mm. so we're like a i was like I, I kind of said yeah yeah no i'd like to you know do, yeah of course i'd love to do that and uh, 2005 was a very dry year so his body was very much visual but 2006 2007 there was so much snow that you know his body was invisible. So it changes with the seasons, whether you see mm. or don't see bodies, mm. one thing. Uh I saw him in two thousand and eight. sat down next to him. I was blown away to see him. Uh I couldn't believe that actually, you know, there was my, you know, teammate from three years before. Um so that was a bit you know, I shed a tear. I'm not a very emotional person. I don't know, maybe I've become emotionally blunted over the years because of, you know, things that have happened. But I do remember shedding a tear. And uh He didn't actually express any interest you know he was one of these kind of he was doing it for himself and you know he was selfish in that kind of climbing mentality where you're trying to get the objective done and uh, uh i don't think he you know it's easy for me to say now but i don't think he would have wanted to have been brought down necessarily i don't think he would have wanted to have been a spectacle on a mountain been written about by people maybe criticizing commercial climbing but yeah no there are dead bodies i don't think there's bodies scattered everywhere that's a bit of a loose way of describing it uh, uh, but I think people who are willing to write and talk about it in a kind of more sensational way perhaps have lost the uh, I think the lost they've lost the meaning of why they're actually there in the first place and I think you know armchair critics are always armchair critics whatever sport or domain you're in you know you're always going to get people uh, having their opinion but 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 this is a kind of very niche part of humanity, you know, there's not many people trying to climb Everest or Manaslu or any other big mountain in the world and the numbers of people who die in it are relatively small, thankfully. And really? so therefore, you know, it affects such a small proportion of the world population who may or may not see a dead body on Everest. But it, right. it is something that we don't need to sort of put too much time and effort worrying about, I don't think. Um but yeah, for sure, it's uh, the drive is not to leave a human body. The, the drive is not to die in the first place. And I think that's what more and more um, commercial expeditions, perhaps the, the, the drive for getting more and more people climbing the mountain, certainly from unrestricted permits being offered by the Nepali government um, to perhaps less scrupulous measures to, to verify the, the, the candidature of a climber who's willing to pay 20, 30, 40,000 bucks to sign up onto a trip. Um, if you don't really do your, your background uh, evaluation of someone, then you, you could be having any number of people who have no real business being on There's the nice mountain. Time. And uh, and so you do end up having those kind of situations where perhaps more and more deaths may become likely. Mm-hmm. But like, as I was saying, I touched on it earlier. Um, I remember after our first summit in 2003, 50th anniversary year, Ended up meeting Ed Hillary, um, Reinhold Messner. There were some amazing people who, who, who have made the history of Everest so rich and incredible. But Messner was, um, you know, obviously Messner's in a league of his own. Uh, he's not only technically amazing, he's also uh, physiologically a supreme athlete and human being in what he's achieved. But he was really quite damning about commercial climbing on Everest, devaluing the the accomplishment. And so I was being directly referred to in that kind of statement in 2003. So I think it would be somewhat, and that kind of made me feel a bit upset because actually I had lots of things to give to the mountain. I wasn't the most experienced climber, so perhaps I earned the right to climb it in 2003. I'd say differently now, um, but, but equally uh, I had lots of things to give. And, and I climbed that mountain in in fine style. I kind of took care of myself with the help of, my Sherpa teammates um but they weren't carrying me up nor down and although they did put logistics in place for me to do that mountain the first time I've gone on to sort of pull my weight in subsequent trips and and there is a difference obviously by doing everything yourself and having no Sherpa support but I've never got into these big debates about oxygen no oxygen if you use a fixed line or not fixed line you know as soon as you clip onto a fixed line you're you're using the help of a, a Sherpa team, uh, you know. So you're, you know, At what point does it become just you and the villas? You know what you've done, and so um, I just celebrate human achievement. Uh, I think if you're not uh, endangering other people or not deliberately endangering other people, then I think you know that you you could argue anyone has a right to be in that domain as long as they they respect the mountain. I think that's where it's going wrong in. You know, bigger expeditions these commercial expeditions there's a people are going just to tick a box I think it is mm-hmm. it's it's um uh, it's to their it's demeaning or devaluing uh, uh, the respect for the mountain and I think that's when it comes to bite, bite you back you might get away with it but I think unless you're there for the right reasons and respect the mountain and what it can take away from you digits or your life you know I think uh, it, you, you you need to really want to do it and respect the mountain and understand what it will means to be on everest I think to to, to to protect what what is an incredible place people and uh, and at the end of the day respect what being on an expedition is all about it's not about Facebooking twittering uh, your social feed updating your sponsors <laughs> you know that mm-hmm. you know I see so, <laughs> in the last few years of climbing on the mountain, we ended up having like a, an email blackout because we just couldn't hack just seeing the, the younger members on the trip constantly you know dinner used to be everyone sitting around the table chatting you know these marvelous stories cards things that actually engaged humans with each other sure, yeah. and you know in the last few trips it was everyone at dinner no one talking everyone on their phones updating their you know their 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 facebook page it's just like I won't say it, but I just, <laughs> so I realised when you look at the older guys still running expeditions, who seem increasingly frustrated and you know just, just sucking it up. I can now understand. That I've become into that kind of generation of slightly older climber who's you know been there, seen it, done it. But uh, you know, you I don't know. I think um social media is important in the the world we live in, but I think it's. Uh, equally it's brought on a lot of hassles problems and when you see people more worried about their social feed than the the climb the next morning you you realize there's a problem on Everest.
0: (laughs) Yeah yeah no kidding. Um, Do you find that the numbers are going up every year as the people that are going out on these expeditions? Is it getting more popular so to speak?
1: I think it it, there's kind of a a kind of saturation point which I think has been reached and what, what had happened in the last maybe five six years of commercial guiding more and more local companies uh, so Sherpa run companies were were uh, uh, running expeditions and so that that was a, an intriguing dynamic between the commercial trips that you know previously established by Western companies mainly American Kiwi British you know you suddenly have this kind of cut into their margin by companies who are locally based offering trips that people are signing on to for half the price which have much fewer kind of overheads. If all your guides are from Nepal, you pay no permit to climb the mountain. If you've got a Western guide, uh, he or she will be paying 11,500 for their permit. You know, so that's, you know, you're flying them from Seattle or you're flying them from uh, Christchurch in New Zealand. That's another cost that you add into your package. Uh, You know, and so all of these things, it became quite hard price-wise for a Western uh, company to compete with the local Sherpa teams. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, there was a kind of very, after 2014 in the fall, the kind of political element of Sherpa's rights. And, uh, you know, they had as much right to have a business offering trips on Everest as, uh, you know, as a Western company. So um, you can't really argue with that. But, but certainly you could argue that some of the safety mechanisms for choosing your, your team members, some of the certainly the the, the quality of logistics uh, and arguably quality of how shepherd staff working on the mountain were treated uh, were were somewhat overlooked by some of the 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 newer companies from a local origin so it became you know there's a kind of friction there that increased the numbers of people going but i think there's a kind of saturation point now you might get up to 300 maximum 400 uh, local sorry three or four hundred western climbers uh, and therefore, you'll have maybe 300 Sherpas in addition climbing. So it mm. sounds like a lot and it is a lot, but, but it's a huge massif of mountain that you're stretching yourselves across. So there's always a way, if you're prudent and if the weather window permits, to spread yourselves fairly thinly on the mountain. So you, you, apart from base camp, you don't get a, an awful sense of the mountain being overrun, not yet.
0: For sure. Yeah. And now you have your own company, correct?
1: Yeah, so we we, um, we a very good friend of mine, Kevin Van. He's a um, an intensive care nurse working out of uh, the Bay Area right now. Um, he's from Tennessee originally, but uh, we made a great friendship on Everest in 2003 when there was no social networking, no satellite phone calling, or if you did, it was 10 bucks a minute. You know, kind of different era altogether. So we forged a fantastic relationship, and uh, we had great sherpas. And we just loved uh, you know, being in Nepal. We loved being on expedition. And uh, we'd, uh, we'd maintained contact. We climbed Denali in 2007 after my double summit. I, um, I came straight back, I, you know, this is the kind of great glorious life I was living to, I did a double summit uh, in 2007, went straight to Alaska. I'm a Brit, <laughs> you know, I'm living in England, I'm flying to Nepal, then to Alaska, climbed Denali with Kev, do the Anchorage marathon i meet my then oh, girlfriend man. in San Francisco. It was like, wow, it was a dream life.
0: Wow, oh, no kidding. But uh, <laughs> yeah,
1: so, so Kevin and I, we had such a great friendship. that we said, you know, how can we stay in touch? Because, you know, you have all these, you know, the you see these people in your life that could be your best mate ever. Uh, oh. But off they come and they go. And, and it's a shame. And we felt that we needed to do something that would maintain our friendship. Uh, and we just... We thought well you know maybe we could you know take people to every space camp you know we had no airs and graces about at that point our capacity to take people high up on the mountain and uh, at that point I hadn't guided I'd just been a, a client or a member on a trip wow. um, but yeah. I am um, we we set up a trekking company and uh, we're being paid well as a doctor and an uh, intensive care nurse in you know in America in England and now Canada so um wasn't for kind of a fundraiser it's a way of like helping to support some of our, our shepherd friends who stopped high altitude climbing because of the dangers so once you stop being a high altitude shepherd, your salary goes from you know like a superstar superstar a superstar sportsman in america to being in the you know just the everyday guy on the street your salary takes a massive hit and uh it suddenly becomes quite a destabilizing thing for the the hopes and aspirations you had for your family but do you keep putting your line on the risk or not so our friends they had kids at school in Kathmandu and it's a thousand dollars a year to school a kid so instead of just giving them the money which we could have done we decided to have a trekking company where our old friends who were climbing with us they were now kind of trekking with us which was very very safe and very very you know they would be earning as much with us trekking as, as what they were climbing Everest and so it was a you know, we, so we got a free trip and that's basically how we model our, our trips. We get a free trip. We, we kind of help support the local economy, our friends in particular. And so it's a way of us maintaining this ripple effect, you know, and of course we're, we get a lot out of it. So it's, uh, it, you know, it's not a charitable organisation, but, it, but it, it does do some good for the local people. And, and we have no worries about it being an income generator for us because we, we have our jobs in, in Canada and the States. So it's yeah. a kind of liberating thing. But yeah, no trip this year. We had to cancel because of for sure. COVID. And our website is awful. So uh, I wouldn't even reckon. It's okay. But we don't keep it at that update, up to date. So we're not. Um, that's the trouble, isn't it? All that glisters is not gold. I think that's what we have to remember. That's a good adage to come from this podcast. Um, our website doesn't look very good, but we offer a very good trip for most people. So yeah, we wanted it. A- a- Every climb was offering a trip of trekking to the mountain that we'd all climb. So everyone who, who guides on our trips has climbed the mountain and has a real. real passion for the area so um, yeah
0: so if i wanted to come out and do a trip like this like how how would i prepare for something like this how do you guys educate me beforehand like do i have to be fit do i have to change my diet or what does that look like
1: yeah so in terms of doing trekking or climbing a mountain like say climbing everest okay climbing everest uh, i definitely want to know your your climbing curriculum vitae so if you've got a good cv of being up at you know, Denali is a great, uh, a great mountain for testing someone's durability. So Denali is always a great thing to know that someone's tried or something in that kind of uh, area of climbing, not the Alpine style climbing, more the kind of, uh, you know, the the logistical slog. Um, It's great to know that someone's been to 8,000 meters. And up until recently, um, that was one of the kind of Prerequisites: climbing Cho or Manaslu. Um, so, so I've been on uh, Cho three times and summited, and, and Manaslu, the eighth highest mountain in the world, and summited that. And they're amazing mountains and great ones for, for you know, cutting your teeth at eight thousand meters without the the excessive risk which comes from being almost at nine thousand meters on Everest or 20, 29,000 feet. So, um, yeah, the CV you can't hide that. I, yeah, but if you haven't got much climbing experience i have had some people who've had less climbing experience but they've had other things to offer so they're willing to go through a sequence of uh, pre-trip uh, trips so we might meet up before an expedition and you know go hiking in the backcountry i want to see that you can carry a pack of 20 kilos you'll never do that in the mountain on the mountain but but it's knowing that you can you know, go outside with a backpack on your shoulders you'd be staggered how many people come to a trekking trip or a oh, climbing yeah. trip and they you they've got a brand new backpack and they've you know they haven't done it much before <laughs> even though what you've heard about them suggests otherwise and it's <laughs> just like really right yeah so i just want to know that uh, you're you're uh, uh i think i'm more rocky four i'm 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 rocky and not dolph lundgren's character and do you remember rocky four of course So basically, uh, Sylvester Stallone's like you know cutting wood in the 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 Alaskan tundra, uh, getting fit for his final boxing match with Dolph Lundgren, whereas Dolph's in the gym, just you know cracking out weights and being analysed, and uh, you know looks like the supreme athlete and is, but actually it's it's that combination of durability and being out in the environment that you're going to be actually in that, that really helps. In terms of weight and diet i don't think we have any particular uh, restrictions or, or concerns but you know if if i get a call from a you know a 50 year old guy who's you know between jobs you know having a bit of a midlife crisis <laughs> and he, he hasn't been out of the office for a few years i'm i'm probably not going to be suggesting to him that it starts with everest you know maybe a trek to base camp you know is a great way to start okay and you know it's a uh, I, yeah, I, I'd actually want to know why you wanted to climb Everest. I think. I sure. Yeah, um, I don't know that I want
0: to. I'm just curious.
1: No, <laughs> no, I know, no. no but, just, but like, it's really intriguing when you find out, you know, why some people want to do it. There are some nebulous, pretty superficial reasons for it. You know, I'm going to be the the youngest or the shortest or the. There's always a, <laughs> like, uh, like the FKT that you were talking about with, right. with Eric. You know, the fastest known time. That's really credible. I think that's really cool. But as soon as you start getting into wanting to be the first or, or the quickest or the, you know, on Everest, it's a mountain. It should be respected. And you, mm-hmm. you, you or that type of mountain, uh, you can't just blitz it and, and think it's all going to be okay. There has to be a bit more depth as to why you want to do it. Mm-hmm. And like, I think, you know, with a, with a Colorado 14,000, a challenge, you can, you can actually pull out, go to your, you know, your car and say, you know, we'll leave it to another time. Whereas if you're at 8,000 metres, you can't call mom and dad to come and pick you up. You know, you, you've got to get yourself down. I always remember sitting on the summit in 2003, the first time, felt very, very, very exposed and isolated, very, very cold, very, very worried about getting down. I didn't know if I could get down, to be honest, and uh, uh, in terms of the way the day was going. But um, I just wanted to phone mom and dad <laughs> to pick me up. And uh, I'm like, you know, you need to be able to get, out of a hazardous situation yourself so that's why i kind of i want to know from people when i speak to them And it's great seeing you in the zoom kind of uh face to face you know you can see in someone's eyes what they're all about so uh you've definitely got the pep and the sense of adventure i'm sure you you make it a success
0: oh that's cool man um have you turned people away or do you just kind of gently tell them "Eh, maybe base camp this year everest a few years down the road or what does that look like
1: yeah, I think the the it's managing expectations is the best way of of letting someone self. Uh, don't let someone don't don't let someone get higher on the mountain to then turn them around when you know they're going to fail. But equally, uh, uh, we've had a number of people who've been very weak on the mountain, lower down the mountain, but higher up they've been some of the strongest. So I've come to learn that speed or apparent strength. At five thousand meters, or twenty thousand feet, doesn't actually equate to how strong or able you will be at 28, 29,000 feet. Mm. I've had some really shocking results in the sense of I would have turned a number of different people around over the years, but but the expedition leader has said, just give them a bit more time. Yeah. Just you know, yeah. you know, slow and steady often wins the race, and sure enough, it's happened. Not always, but 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 it's startling at eight thousand meters when you put oxygen on someone. you're a i always remember um serena a woman who was middle-aged uh not particularly fit uh uh, and not doing very well and i thought she would be sent home because she really wasn't doing that well but then she blitzed the summit quicker than anybody and basically if you've got slightly less muscle bulk and you put on oxygen you suddenly do a lot better a lot lot better Mm -hmm. disproportionately Mm -hmm. better so um so yeah uh but but yeah, no, I've, I've had to say, uh, I, you know, why don't we do something different first? You know, let's go to Aconcagua first, which is a kind of trekking peak before uh, taking someone on Everest. And that way you get a great trip. It's not very expensive. It's not an expensive mistake to take someone's money, you know, 40 grand. I mean, I, I don't have a fee by the way, in terms of climbing Everest. I normally with other trips who, who take money from other people. And if I am paid or if I just get a free trip, then I'm all in, you know, it's mm. like a great thing. but. Mm-hmm. Uh, to take 40 grand from someone knowing full well they're going to fail i think that's a fairly mm. hideous part of commercial climbing that really needs to be looked at uh, yeah. uh, luckily i don't have the situation trying to make my income from from climbing it's yeah. not for the pleasure yeah so i'm liberated i'm free
0: that's a good life right there
1: yeah no it's, it's okay we're doing all right
0: well so like what's next for a guy like you it sounds like you've you've like you've done it all man like do you have anything that's still on the bucket list
1: um but yeah i'd like to uh, i think the atlantic is calling me back or ah, the pacific nice. you know okay. i think a road would be good another great bike ride uh, i think there's a few i thought i'd like to go across america uh yeah. you know um uh, i'm not sure i'd want to do that in a, in a mask so that can wait for a little bit <laughs> i think uh, i'm establishing a life uh with my with Mary Christelle and our new daughter Eleanor. we uh, we're trying to do trips with uh the kid and the the dog you know so wherever yeah. we go uh, nice. our Pembroke um, Pemba, our, our Italian SpanoNI comes and uh, Eleanor comes, but I think yeah, I think our next big trip will be a, a bike trip with, uh, with Eleanor and uh, being towed along, and that would be a cool, a great thing to get those kind of uh, adventure juices flowing once again. But um, cool. yeah, once we're out in Nepal, it'll be good again for sure.
0: Cool, and your wife's an athlete in her own right, is isn't that right? Yeah. She's done uh, the Marath- marathon de Saab in, in Africa, right, in the Sahara Desert.
1: Yeah, Sahara Desert. So she's done the marathon Martin uh We did the Mongolia, the Gobi Desert, uh, ah, r- uh, the four deserts uh, sequence of of, of uh, endurance running. Mm-hmm. She she blitzed me on that. I had a really bad uh, um again uh, excuses excuses, but my ITB <laughs> was awful. And she uh, yeah she came tenth in the women, so she was like really stoked about her performance. And she's a uh, she's uh she's she's nails she's got she's psychologically very strong and very capable and um you know i proposed to her at uh, uh a village uh, at four thousand meters so about 13 14000 feet in 2009 and i took advantage of hypoxia thinking you know that would like confuse her and just saying yes and she did say yes thankfully but it turns out she's got this great capability at altitude as well so she um mm. she's climbed chihuahua the sixth highest mountain uh in the world she's been on Akin and climbed to the summit. Um, yeah, she's, uh, she's kind of, she's a consultant cardiologist as well. So she's like pretty niche. It gave a lot to her career, but she's also trying to, you know, get, get her life back now. So we're in this kind of flux of trying to work out where it's all heading, but, um, yeah, yeah, now I'm privileged to be married to her. She's a, she's a good lass.
0: Oh, that's cool. Sounds like you're in a good place. Yeah. Um, Thank you. But, uh, rowing the Atlantic does still pique your interest though, huh?
1: Yeah, Marcus. said hey, maybe we could start by sailing, um, but I'm I'm not sure a uh, husband and wife has much business of rowing a boat across <laughs> really Atlantic okay, if they want to maintain their relationship. So yeah, no, I might need uh, some volunteers to to write in and uh, be my uh, uh, my 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 second person. But um, yeah, no, I think uh, the wanderlust is really rising. I think uh, just anything right now uh, would be great to travel and to yeah. see parts of the world but i'm engaging with bits of quebec that i you know haven't seen before and you realize that that there's always something nice or great to do even on your own doorstep you just have Mm -hmm. to dig a bit deeper sometimes and um i always felt that i looked on with envy with my friends who live in colorado just outside the Vale, and uh it's like geez, i'd love to live here and and but actually where i live is pretty nice too so uh, you know i think you have to look on the the positive side of things Uh, you look at what you have not what you don't have and And I think that helps you get through times like this.
0: You got it. Yeah. And uh, you've probably heard this joke before, but seeing how you're from the UK, couldn't you just uh, take the boat and just like go home to see your family or something?
1: Is, is, yeah. Is that- yeah. <laughs> it'd, be a, it'd be a slightly chillier return journey, though. Like we went from La Gomera in the Canary Islands, just off the <laughs> west coast of Africa to Antigua, which is the Caribbean. So you de- I, I, that's definitely the easier way of doing it. You know, uh, f- uh, rowing back from like New York or uh, Quebec City uh, across the North Atlantic—that's uh, that's another order of, uh, uh, of suffering, I think. Gotcha, now give me the gotcha. warm sun and the Caribbean, uh, the Caribbean rum.
0: Ah, gotcha, gotcha. (laughs) Oh, man, you've been awesome to talk to, man. I've really enjoyed the conversation. You're just, you're a renaissance man, and it sounds like you've just done all (laughs) kinds of stuff. So it's been a pleasure, man. I mean, I could talk to you all night long, but it sounds like, I know you have to work tonight, but it sounds like your stories could just go on forever. So I I, I appreciate
1: Uh, your time. Well, thank you for sharing your podcast with us and your oh, your absolutely. inspirations, and and I think absolutely. we need to turn the the roller roller reversal at some point to hear a, a bit more <laughs> about your amazing accomplishments. But thank you very much. You've been very uh, very kind to have me on. I it's, it's been, been a there.
0: pleasure. Thank you. Stay in touch. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Okay. Take care.
1: Namaste. Bye, man. Bye. Bye. All right.
0: What did you guys think? Rob has pretty much done it all. Chatting with him just really fired me up and made me want to get outside and go run up and down a whole bunch of mountains. If you guys need anything to help you do big things, give me a shout at big-things-crewing.com. If you need a crew or pacers for your ultra or supported adventure, we can help. Or if you need a coach training plan vitamins or supplements i got you this is an exclusive deal for do big things listeners i have ties to one of the biggest health supplement companies in the world these supplements are super high quality and i can get you everything protein bcaas pre-workout post-workout rhodiola supplements cbd high quality energy drinks you name it you guys I'm bringing you the best stuff around to help you guys stay healthy and to bring out the best version of yourselves. Big Things Crewing is here for you, and we want to help. Life is short. Do big things, baby.